When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get to the good part. I'm Ryan. This is Chris. I'm Aaron. And with us today is a very, very special guest. Anybody out there who is an avid gunter is probably familiar with her already from the tweets and from the Ready Player One set subreddit. Uh, we've got Angie Ray with us today. Angie, thanks for coming. Woo! Thanks. It's great to be here. <laughs> now, Angie and I recorded actually like a full-on interview between me and Angie uh, at the beginning of last summer, and uh, I will tell you now that the audio for that was completely compromised. (laughs) The second half of the interview didn't even come through. So unfortunately, we never got to hear that. We'll do it again in the future, hopefully, if she's gracious enough to give us more of her time. Um, But tonight, we're just going to waste an hour or two of hers talking about Chapter 17 of Ready Player One, a chapter that begins... In AOL Instant Messenger, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Is that the read you got on this? Did you feel like an old ICQ chat room? Oh, Absolutely. It's, it's sad that, that the technology still exists like that during that period of time. But, I mean, I guess it's got to be like a text message on your phone or, or something like that. Uh, it actually works well as a, a plot device. You know, in, er, in the earlier chapter where... Parzival responds to H by text message only, so he can't see where he is. I mean, it it actually is kind of pivotal. And there are a lot of shows and movies that have incorporated that kind of plot point or plot device. Like, um, what's the White House television show that recently got canceled? Recently got canceled. Oh, House of Cards. House of Cards uses that. So they'll be out there, they'll be texting, and you'll see like Mm. a a bubble pop up, and you see the text come across the screen. Oh yeah, yeah. Kind of use that as a as a means of portraying that communication type that's so common today. That makes sense. I dig it. That's as far as I was going to go with that. (laughs) (laughs) But either way, this is their preferred uh, method of communication because Artemis doesn't want to have anything to do with a, I guess, a a dedicated chat room where they would sit there and talk face-to-face. Uh, given the nature of the conversation that happens beyond this point, I kind of understand why. I mean, let's, I'll I'll break this down and then I kind of want to open it up to you guys. So what happens over the next few pages and for a good portion of the chapter, I'd say probably about 60 to 70% of the chapter is the conversation between uh, Z and Artemis in this chat room. And I gotta say, even, you know, from the first time I read it, all the way up until now, probably one of the most uncomfortable chapters in the book. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely agree. It, it's cringeworthy every time I read it or Sir Will Wheaton reads it to me. Like, I just cringe at every line that Parzival says. What about you, Angie? Um, you know, I actually read through this again today because it had been a while. And... um. 
you know, he's trying and she's holding back, but she's talking to him. And I, it's, he's got no social skills at all. Like you said, it's so cringy, but I think it's, you know, it's in character, but you know, she just keeps kind of playing along with it. And I don't know why she doesn't just, I don't even know. In conversation, um, close like, chat like, window. You know we're, we're done here. Like, this is not. But I think at this point, she's interested. She is interested. They're talking. They're they're playing their back and forth. They're learning about each other. And they're doing that whole teasing back and forth thing that I think is really common with, with people who are just getting to know each other. And you're kind of picking at each other and trying to see where everybody's soft spots are, I think. You know, like. So it's not horrible, <laughs> but I just think that, I don't know. It's like you said, it's cringy. It really is. What about you, what Chris? I, what do you think? Go ahead. Uh, there are parts that are cringy. Like at the very end where he's like, sweet dreams. I'm like, oh, <laughs> God, really? Oh, you're cheesing the shit out of me. Like, like the hairs on the back of my neck start to go up like, oh, that really comes off desperate. But there are moments where he's on the same side of the table as her. And they're talking, for example, about how most gunters are male and they can't accept the idea that a woman has beat them or outsmart them. She's like, I know, Neanderthals. And in that moment, he's successfully gone from opposite ends of a very uncomfortable facing table to being on the same side with her and kind of talking with her as if she's a friend, like, like a buddy. And oftentimes when you have this sort of back and forth flirtation, it's 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 flirtatiously confrontational. It's painfully obvious. But Ernest kind of has a couple moments where he cleverly fits it in where they can kind of be on the same level and on the same side of the table. And I, I thought in those moments I was kind of like, oh, that, that's kind of a clever way to approach the situation. But other times where he's totally gushing on her, I'm dying. And you would kind of expect that of someone his age interacting with kind of the first girl he's really had a chance to talk to in that way. And especially given the fact that he grew up without positive influences to teach him how to interact with people. I mean, he did the best he could, but it's still, it just nails on a chalkboard most of the time. The thing that I, I have the hardest time wrapping my head around, and I talked with Chris about this, on the sidelines, football reference there. Uh, <laughs> we 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 talked about this a little bit, but I mean, it's it's almost hard to wrap your mind around the fact that this is written from, you know, I mean, obviously from Wade's perspective, but from the same writer. So essentially, he's he is creating Artemis's narrative here. He's hitting on you know himself? what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that, that's got to be kind of a difficult thing uh, to do, but it's hard to really, as I listened to the chapter and took notes and everything, I mean, it was hard for me to figure out what his motivation was from the Artemis perspective, because she seemed a little bit all over the map. I mean, there were times where they started to veer, like you said, into a more friendship conversation. And then, you know, she pauses and says, hold on a second, don't change the subject. You were talking about how you had a crush on me and brings it back to that conversation. So, like, to me, there's this back and forth where, like Angie said, I mean, like, it seems like she's she's, you know, maybe not as into him, but she's definitely sort of into him 
Is that is that is that right? I mean, do you guys get the same read? I I don't think that she was into him at first. I I feel like she kind of the needle kind of started to move in that direction as the conversation went on. Because she like at the very beginning she said like stop trying to talk to me. I only said yes to this chat to tell you to stop. I I get tired of the of the the trope of the guy chasing the gal and that somehow in a narrative the gal's job is to push off and to resist and that the guy's job is to push verbally and as cleverly as he possibly can and to expect a teenager to somehow masterfully do this weird social dance is a, is a hard sell in a book. But more importantly, it, the, the chapter starts off with, I only started talking to you to tell you to stop, which has that, that sort of that latent feel of, I'm just trying to resist because I'm playing my part in the book as the one that's supposed to resist for whatever reason. And you can even look at it as that, that sort of thing of, of, you know, her resistance is reasoned behind, well, I, I am attracted to you, but as a result, I have to resist because I want to focus on this other thing. However you played out, though, it, it feels tired. Like, I just get tired of the female being a, a runner and the guy ends up being the chaser. And when that scenario plays out, you, you can go either direction and it can be either cute or offensive. And the same narrative, it, the narrative could be identical. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if they, you get, um, you have a female character whose entire purpose is to be this thing for him to overcome or this lesson for him to learn. And I think there would have been a, I mean, they could have absolutely gotten together in this book without bringing this sort of chase situation into it. They could have met each other through this hunt. They could have gone back and forth. And to bring in this whole, well, I, you know, leave me alone. I don't want to do this. And then. You know, she's, he says, are we going to have an online romance? And she's like, no. And then, you know, they start talking. And then, you know, it's just, like you said, it's just this trope of she's an obstacle for him to, you know, like he has an obstacle. He's trying to win this contest. And then you have to throw in that, you know, she's also an obstacle. And it's just, it's tired. It's old. And I think if you look at 80s movies, it's, it's a very common um, rom-com plot. And I think it's a callback. And, you know, they even mention, you know, like we talked about it today in that, in that um, panel that they talked about today about how it's, we think, men think they need to chase women because we've put that down as a trope. That's what they see in fiction, in, in television, in movies. And it's old and it's time to put it away. <laughs> and I think that it was really unnecessary in here and like you said she's all over the map for one minute she's like you know leave me alone and then she's like whatever and then Tell she's me more like about this crush yeah like you know oh i could block you but you know i won't and it seems out of character to the way she acts the rest of the time she seems very confident and very knows what she's doing and she's focused and, and then this this scene <laughs> and, then, and then this shit happens she's like uh, okay i feel like that's a good segue to the their conversation about uh, in the Oasis, whether or not your raw personality or you're filtered through your avatar, because they clearly have two very different opinions on who people are in the Oasis. And I, I don't know if I can actually figure out what, 
I don't think you're either one of those all the time. I, I think you do go back and forth. Sometimes you are a raw personality. And I think we saw that side of Artemis in the tomb, which is why she doesn't want to do a real chat room. She wants to be more filtered and she admits this. I, I thought that was that that debate about who people are in the Oasis is, is an interesting one. So you think it's it's just sort of like a you know hitting record on like a bygone era as far as how they interact with each other? Yeah, it's almost like like nothing's evolved here. We've got we've got this awesome technology and ways to meet people and in places, but we're still kind of harkening back to the Oasis is just a mask and you know, why are you talking to me and stop pestering me? Oh, okay, tell me how beautiful I am. Just just kinda yeah, it's it's it's, it's nineteen eighties dating in twenty forty five. So Angie, tonight uh you, you were at a you were at a, a conference um and you you went to a uh you, you went to a particular session that dealt directly with what we're talking about. I did. It was called uh Strong Female Characters and the Protagonists Who Harass Them. And um <laughs> That's awesome. A great and she was brought up specifically in the description. It was her and like Uhura from the from the newer Star Trek book uh, novels, uh, movies, and some other stuff. And one of the things they talked about is it turns the female character into a plot device. It's another puzzle for him to solve. She's not a person. She's a puzzle for him to solve and find the right way to get himself into where he wants to be. And it's it's tired. It's tired and it's old and it's at this point. I mean, I understand that. 2010 or so when he was writing this book is not the same world as 2017 when we're looking at it now um it's even less acceptable now as it was six years ago um so it's a little it's a sensitive uh, topic at the moment so i think that makes it even harder for someone who's coming into this book for the first time to go whoa like this is not okay so i understand that even the way things have changed we are looking at something that's almost 10 years old so when I first read it, I was like, oh, this is a good book. Okay, cool. And then I think as I got older and we started talking about these kind of subjects and, you know, she's a person. She's not, he doesn't have to find the right code words to break into her heart. And, you know, like they could have just been friends and it could have developed into a relationship that happens every day. Um, making this difficult, no, no, go away. Well, okay, maybe, you know. I just think that, um, and we talked about it in the in the panel, that there are better ways of doing that. There are better ways of dealing with relationships and people and not turning women into plot devices. And, uh, he, and, and a, a reason for him to learn a lesson. Well, he learned, don't do that. Well, okay, but she serves a better purpose than that. And I think one of the reasons it bothers me the most is she's such a well-written character other than this plot line that it really drives me crazy because I think you look at her throughout the book and you think she wouldn't have acted that way or she would have called him on his shit. And I, I just, I think it's, he tried to shoehorn in this eighties rom-com plot in the middle of his book, which I understand why he would want to do that, but I just don't think it works with this otherwise pretty awesome character that he's written. I think she, she backtracks through this. I think there's something that you brought up that I really wanted to talk about. Um, because you 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 sent me uh when when we invited Angie into the podcast, I didn't actually know that she was going to that session, <laughs> and we were talking about this chapter, and she sent me a picture of the program talking about this very subject, and it was like, oh my god, that's perfect. Oh yeah. But but 
you know, I mean, and I'll I'll fully admit this, you know, I mean, like, this is a character written from the perspective of a man. It's a strong female character written from the perspective of a man. But here's the thing. As you pointed out, she's still written in as a hurdle or, you know, some sort of thing for him to conquer or overcome. And that's really unsettling. You know, when, when you think about it in that context, that, you know, her sort of, you know, pushing away on him or saying, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I'm focused on the hunt just the same as you, you know, and then you, you, you reframe that into, you know, I, I think the, you know, you could call it the, the modern narrative, but, but honestly, it's just reality. She was written in there almost as a, a, a plot device. And I think for a lot of, especially, you know, a lot of women that, that read this, this book, this might be incredibly frustrating because I think, and, and again, I'll, I'll fully admit this as a guy, like maybe my first couple reads of it, I didn't pick up on that. And, you know, that's sort of, that that's sort of telling of the issue. But I, you know, I mean, I wonder as like a, a, a young woman reading this book, how, how that would come off. You know, I mean, did that, did, for, what about you, Angie? Like your first read, was this something that just, you know, clear out, jumped out at you? No, absolutely not. I read it and I thought, well, that's the narrative that we get. That's what happens. That's what happens in a, when there's a romance plot in something. And um, like I said, it took, you know, several readings and, and thinking about it to go, well, okay. I see what he's trying to do. I see that it, it matches in with, with, what you know he's calling back to the 80s and um but i just if you take if you took this and took that out you could tell the exact same story it's absolutely not necessary to the story she could have been one of the high five they all got to know each other i, I just it was unnecessary but no absolutely the first i read this book for the first time two months after it came out and it never i went oh that's cool okay they ended up to, you know like whatever um whatever um it didn't it didn't occur to me for a long time. And I think as time went on and I, you know, would read it again and read it again, I got more and more uncomfortable with it. And it was like, mm. and it gets, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing that it's the way she's written into the story is she is the first person to find, you know, you know, to find the tomb fours. She is, she is clearly as far as, you know, thought process, the the superior to even Wade. I mean, in in many ways. And it's just it would be so interesting to see this story from her perspective. You know what I mean? Because it would be a completely different story. And I think this chapter is a really good fulcrum point for how that story would differ from what we have in Ready Player One. You know, like her perspective on this conversation would probably be much different in you know i mean in the same way that you know when we say she's written in as almost like a hurdle or a plot device you know it it may not it may not occur to you on first read but when if you were to read it honestly from her perspective it would probably be a lot different from what what you would suppose just reading it from the way that Ernest wrote it 
But then again, and this is the tough part, is he wrote it. <laughs> she exists because he created her. So it's 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 this really awkward sort of chapter. And I think the cringes that, you know, Aaron was talking about and some of the discomfort that I, you know, that I kind of felt reading it, you know, came from the fact that, like, you know, yeah, she's she's in this sort of odd position in the book, but somebody put her there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't think that it was intentional. I don't know. I mean, what, what was your guys' read on that? Uh, I mean, Well, I would actually wonder if Ernest Klein had any women read the book while he was writing it. Uh, and I ask this question now because a couple month or two ago, I went to an Andy Weir talk about his new book, Artemis, um, which is his follow-up to The Martian. And the lead character in that book is a female. And he talked at length about how he had all the women closest to him read the book and make sure that he was getting that perspective down better than he could on his own. And yeah. That being said, I don't think he did the best job of it. Uh, I think, or at the very least, I think he, he writes, I I don't know. The Martian to me was such an, an amazing book. And I think he just nailed the character down because the character Mark Watney is basically him. When you hear him talk, you can definitely tell where he got a lot of the inspiration for that character's nuance. Uh, But when he wrote, uh, the novel Artemis from the female perspective, it's, it's just, it's not the same. Uh, I understand that he got that, uh, the, uh, the input from the women closest to him about the, the character jazz Bashura, but he, he wasn't as successful at it, but it just makes me wonder if Ernest Klein got that outside perspective about Artemis seeing as she is such a strong, important character in this book. Chris, you were going to say something. Spotlight. Uh, I, I think like to have the story to be what, what Hollywood needs it to be. And from everything that I've read and seen, it seems like the book was written with great intention to become a movie regardless. Like there was a movie script written and, and he kind of pitched it as well as being the book that there's going to be a love interest. It's, it's unfortunate, but you know, Bankers kind of love that. Oh, there's got to be a love interest in an action scene in the fourth part of the book. Crap like that. So what I found that was nice was that we have these points where Parzival is awkward. And I think that kind of portrays that weird awkwardness. I think it's a a maybe not incredibly accurate reflection of how awkward it is, but from an 18-year-old boy's perspective, still awkward. But what I've really enjoyed about a lot of the conversation here was that I really felt like Artemis's personality was much more defined because of the provocation for conversation. That, you know, we know that she's dedicated. We know right from the beginning of this chapter, she's pushing off. She's like, look, dude, I'm only talking with you to tell you to shut the hell up because this is my focus. And that she has some vulnerabilities and insecurities that complement her strengths. And these are things that would be very difficult to uncover if there wasn't something to dig in. I mean, we know that Parzival and H have a relationship, and they define what that is early. 
So their conversations into the backstory seem natural. Now we've got this new character, and there's got to be a reason for him to care and dig into them or, or dig into to Artemis. So the love, the, the, the obsessive kind of thing that he's got going on here, to me in itself seems like a plot device for opening up and exposing the kind of character that Artemis is. And I feel like, love plot device aside, these are kind of the parts that, that allow Artemis to open up that window into a deeper character, a character that I actually care about, and one that I would love to actually read a story from her perspective of, versus it just being the guy chasing the girl and the guy hearing what he wants to hear, her going, oh, ha, 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 you know. There's actually some interesting information that gives you insight into her background through the bullshit that is his trying to quote unquote hit on her. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I just, it's so hard, you know, to like Wade is such a well-developed character because he is Ernest Klein, you know, I mean, in, in so many ways. I mean, it, it's, and it's hard, especially when you're writing this, you know, this sort of isolated human being, this, you know, this introvert, you're writing him into, you know, what is becoming like his, 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 his first sort of encounter with other people, <laughs> you know, in a social situation. And then on top of that, you have to write how the other people would react to him, like kind of coming into his own. I mean, that... There's there's an angle there that makes it just completely you know just just really hard to kind of to navigate I would think as a writer yeah and then how do you use that as a crack to open up into the depths or, or richness of a character that you really want to introduce as a, an equal amongst other characters in this narrative uh, and and to that extent I appreciate this more than some other shows and novels that I've written where you know that character isn't considered equal, just as you've mentioned, an obstacle to overcome. Uh, I don't know. That's. I feel like without this sort of crappy little angle that I don't know how they would have been able to introduce Artemis as deeply without the sort of quid pro quo that they get into and her, you know, pushing off in order to create a deeper movement of engagement between the two. You know, we, we wouldn't get to see a lot of the stuff. Or if we did, it would be, you know, I don't, I don't know how that would be introduced. There may be more creative ways to do it. It's just an interesting angle that he took. And then when he took that angle, we get more information out of her and care really less about him. Because honestly, when you get out of a chapter like this, do you find yourself liking her more and caring less about him? I, I, would, I would say you end up feeling less enamored with him as the main character because he just and he Sucks even admit he, he's really bad <laughs> at it and he admits how fucking stupid he is uh, yeah you can't get out of this chapter thinking better of him i don't know if it sets it up for you liking artemis more i think it, it's introducing you to her more so you start you learn more about her you be, you know you get more of an attachment to the character now but I think this is this is more about leveling down on Parzival. Okay, and from my, that's how I he's he's yeah he's just so bad at everything he does and he knows it, and yeah. That's so typical teenager though. 
But yeah, that's that. I mean, like he's being a he's being what I would expect an eighteen year old kid who has no idea what the fuck to do. Yeah, is gonna. Well, I mean, we already know he has no modeling of healthy relationships in his life whatsoever. Well, Rick, come on, Rick was awesome. <laughs> you know, Rick is one of a string of losers, as as he points out early in the book. Like he's never seen functional relationship in his entire life his dad died when he was an infant and then you know his mother didn't seem to date and then he goes into the situation with Alice and Rick and I think you have a really good point with this was a good way of bringing in a lot of information about Artemis and teaching us a lot about Artemis and I think there's two reasons for that one it's really hard to do that in a first person perspective it's hard to get into her head when all you see is her reflected in, in Wade's eyes and two it's a first novel. There are some clumsy parts to it. Mm-hmm. I can see what he was trying to do, and I think there are several parts in this book where he just doesn't quite hit the mark he's going for. And I think that between the first-person perspective and the fact that he, you know, this was a first novel, I think he just got there the best way he could, given the framing of the story and his ability level at that point in time. And I just think those both work against you when you're trying to develop a character that you never see anything from that character's perspective. That's why I think, you know, the movie is going to be such an interesting thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's going to be sort of a reimagining of the book. I mean, we know that just from the race sequence that they keep putting in every trailer, we know it's not going to be, you know, completely religious to what was written, but it's going it's also probably going to take a different approach on the characters without speaking too much about H. I mean, we know that probably is going to be handled a little bit differently. I don't know. Uh, We know as far as Avatar is concerned, it looks like it will be. But, you know, they may handle the relationship between Artemis and Wade a little bit differently, too. I think that's something that I'm waiting to see. You know, I mean, this is... You know, in a lot of different ways, this is going to be a retelling of Ready Player One. And I think yeah. they were pretty they were pretty forthcoming about that and saying, like, yeah, maybe it's not the truest thing to the book. I mean, I think um Ben Mendelssohn, you know, was kind of talking about how he played his character a little different from the way he was portrayed in the book. I don't really know how you could you you could deviate from, you know a guy that I think we would all agree is just absolute fucking evil. You know, I mean, we know Ben Mendelsohn can do that, but I mean, there's going to be some freedom to, to stray from the book to, you know, further develop those characters. And I think that extends beyond just, you know, the actors, but also to Zach Penn, who, you know, had a huge hand in rewriting this. Um, And so I think you'll, you'll see a different take on Artemis. Um, I, you know, I, I, I just don't know. I still haven't read that, that leaked script that is going around. Yeah. I, I won't get anywhere near it. I avoid it daily. Like I think about it's, it's, it's awful how often I think about it <laughs> because it, it tells something about me. Just, just remind yourself that you actually have a chance to experience ready player one again for the first time. Yeah. That's, and that is my, that's my mantra. You know, I mean, like that's. That's uh, that's the only thing giving me willpower at this point, but I'm itching to see it. It'll be interesting to see, like, a reimagining of the characters. You know, I mean, if they try to make 
Like, cause I don't know if they try to make Wade a little less of what he was in this chapter, or they try to flesh Artemis out as you know something a little more. But you know, I'll be in- I'll be anxious to see it for sure. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Eh. <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> um, I can't even go see it on opening night. I'm so. <sighs> are you serious? Yeah. Is your life so planned ahead that March 30th is spoken for? Well, that's the first night of Passover. (laughs) So then it is, huh? Yes, it is. Okay. (laughs) It was planned a long, long time ago. (laughs) But I can guarantee you, I'm going to be seeing it the next morning (laughs) as soon as I get up. That I can guarantee. All right. So. Let me ask you. Let me ask. Let me ask you a question. Because as I was reading through this for the forty-third time, uh, given recent events over the past eight months, twelve months, I I saw this chapter in a different perspective, which was that I felt going through here that this could be a very different scenario. So moving into page on my screen here, one seventy-four, where we end the dialogue between. Parzival and Artemis, and I'll just do a quick read-through where Parzival says, can I at least keep emailing you? Artemis says, not a good idea. Parzival, you can't stop me from emailing you. Artemis, actually, I can. I can block you on my contact list. Parzival, you won't do that, though, would you? Artemis, not if you don't force me to. Parzival, harsh, unnecessarily harsh. Could you imagine a scenario where she is not interested and this could be perceived more as harassment. More harassment than <laughs> actually, and like I said, this this chapter is actually not nearly as bad as it gets. Um, it gets so much worse. Um, I I think at this point she's saying, you know, not that if you don't force me to. And then we go right into where he's like, well, I emailed her once a week, and I think she, you know, she answers. So I think if he had started mail bombing her again which is what it sounded like he was doing at the beginning of this chapter i think she would have been like look you didn't learn anything from that conversation we just had but you know she says don't force me to have to block you it doesn't sound like she wants to but she's saying that she will if he can't respect her boundaries and i think that he tries he says you know i showed restraint and only wrote her once a week and she responds to that so he does find somewhere where she's comfortable so I think that at this point, he's, it's not as harassing as it could have been. She says, you know, don't force me to. She's not saying, I'm going to block you if you ever email me again. Mm-hmm. So I think at this point, he's, he's not crossing a line that she's not comfortable with. Um, she's kind of let him know, like, this isn't going to go anywhere. But of course, he's not going to buy that at all. Um, and she thinks she's made her point. I mean, that's my reading. She thinks she's made her point, like, this isn't going to happen. But, you know, don't force me to have to block you, you know, unsaid here. I like talking to you. We had, you know, so. There's, There's a conversation, conversation that gets brought up, though, you know, about no means no, means no, no or testing, testing boundaries. boundaries. You, know, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, and, you know, you know I mean, should, should he have done, done you know, know, what was the right thing to do and just said, said okay, okay, she, she said, said no, back, back off. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That, that would have been, been, you know, you know the mature right thing to do. But of, oh, course, but of course, he did that. Do I mean, that. I mean, I guess, I guess, the I guess, is, I guess, the question is that as a deficiency in his character. Oh, it definitely is. But 
like I said, I don't think it's out of character. I think he's behaving exactly the way that we would expect him to behave from what we've seen. He's young. He has no social skills. He has no examples of how to deal with people. And he just has already blown past her boundaries to begin with. And I think he just really carefully treads the line right here. I think it's, like I said, she, you know, I don't know. I think he's just walking that line. And it works. And that kind of annoys me. But that's how it was written. Sure. He, he stays right. Just, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And eventually he <laughs> down. He does seem like an annoying little brother at times to her. It, it does kind of piss you off how successful he is at this conversation, given how horrible he is at it. And just like, like you said, just like, getting like being so close to that line, but just not crossing it. It's like, he doesn't deserve to keep talking to her. And I want to get into this as we press on a little bit. Um, Cause we're going to circle back around and we're going to get back into the, the Artemis and uh, imparsable relationship a little bit later in the chapter. So I want to save this part, I think for then, but for now let's, let's kind of move on. Um, right now Z is uh Z has graduated from high school, and uh, my question is: <laughs> This is this this is something that stuck with me when I was when I was going through the chapter. Like he graduates, and they mail his diploma to the stacks. He hasn't been in school <laughs> since the stacks got blown up, and they know generally where his address is. Furthermore, the principal knows he <laughs> he sold him out to IOI. Why the fuck would they mail, they mail him a copy of his diploma? Principal might not know he's dead. I think he's got a pretty good idea. <laughs> I mean, just, uh, you know, we're talking a period of days here from the beginning of the book till now. And it, in the interim, IOI has talked to the principal. The principal has been paid off to give this information. And the address where this kid lives gets blown to smithereens and he's like send him his diploma no <laughs> yeah if the principal got the payout that they imply he got he doesn't give a shit <laughs> why why stop the process but more importantly this isn't a day or two like this jumps actually where we, he says i graduated past tense from high school in early june it feels like we've jumped ahead in time and he's briefly coming out co- covering a span of time where conversation has evolved and then he you know moves past this goal point of having received you know his diploma so i I feel like this particular end of the chapter kind of jumps through time but the time frame of them sending the diploma is the same well he cleared the gate in february yes and he didn't graduate till june in the meantime he has moved and left and fled there was time there but yeah maybe and I was gonna say, well, maybe he thought they emailed it, uh, thought they mailed it to his house, but they didn't also email it to him. <laughs> so they did actually try to give him his diploma. So explosion I, I, happens. Wade doesn't show up to school. <laughs> he had enough credits, so they he did. <laughs> they did cover that. They did cover that. He had enough credits. To, Could to... you imagine the look on the mailman's face? <laughs> Where do I put it? I'm just gonna leave this here. <laughs> I'll put it next to the meth lab equipment that got blown up. The smoking <laughs> remains of 
it's, it's probably <laughs> it's probably like apartments where you have like that giant wall of mailboxes that they go up to, and it's your job to walk a half a mile to it to get it. Oh, he's in so stack maybe- forty two. We'll just stick it into that box. <laughs> I mean, clearly, they, they didn't investigate anything. They were like, oh, meth lab, that's got to be it. Trailers, explosion, meth lab. <laughs> Not exactly CSI Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you smell meth? Case closed. <laughs> Could you imagine CSI Oklahoma, what that shit would look like? <laughs> that, that feels like fan fiction that needs to be written. Somebody write that right now. Someone tipped old man McDonough's cows today on CSI. (laughs) That would be the worst show of all time. I'd watch it. I totally would watch it. Without question. So going back to the passage of time, one thing that bothered me is that he seems to have been able to get to level 99 really fast. When you got money. He bought his way to level 99. Let's face it, because, you know, you're buying the equipment to support your level. Then you go do what it takes to get that level, and you buy more equipment to get the next level. Without the tools, that's the reason why he hasn't been able to move up to begin with, and you need the money to get the tools. Yeah, but my understanding of gaming, which is very, very little, is that with each increased level, it gets harder and harder to increase in levels. Like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's incremental or exponential. More often than not, yeah. And... Yeah, you know, they go into the fact that Artemis and H had both recently made their climb to 99. And we know Artemis was a 52nd, 51st level uh, mage. So they had a huge head start. And when he f- finished the uh, tomb, he got to what, level 10? He was, he was level 1, though, when he started. It was like level yeah. one or two, but then or when he gets three. out of the tomb, yeah, he's very low, and then he jumps up to like level ten without even trying, or or just for just for getting through the the first gate. So it just seemed, he had a huge gap before even getting to level fifty, and suddenly by the time he's graduated high school, he's level ninety nine. Well, so and he's probably also playing twenty hours a day, right? But but H H never had a money problem. That was the other thing that stuck with me is like he he was this he was this renowned gamer this you know this first person shooter player everybody knew who H was already he was kind of a celebrity and like if money wasn't an object why wasn't he ninety nine before this even started maybe you don't get experience points for the arena battles he was working in and he was too busy doing those to do quests that's Could be. definitely but- a but, that, that could totally so, be it. Yeah. Another thing that stuck out with me was he's making this climb to 99, but he's also, this is his first chance to really explore the Oasis. Like, he's never been able to do any of this. Yeah. Well, over the time, I guess, I, I, this is a montage chapter. Let's just call that what it is. Half this sure. chapter is a montage. Like, you <laughs> add music to it, you could see him going and doing the Goonies world with Artemis in one moment and then off doing something else in the next moment, and you'd have this montage. It's a montage. <laughs> montage. Now he's doing something cool. Montage. You know. So this whole thing is just the movement through time minus cool music. But it, it's interesting how he kind of you know hits on 
the different things that kind of justify him getting to that 99th level, which in my mind is just kind of fucking risky because like you said, if you're competing, you're getting money for advertising. You're not getting experience probably. But if you're going through the different missions throughout the Oasis, there is the true risk of death and with risk comes reward and experience is the reward. So to climb through 99 while being the guy that has the key and the gate under your belt, that's mind blowing, I guess. Like I'd be, that's, you could lose that if you die. Mm. So to go through that, it's kind of, it feels like it just jumps over the fact that, oh, and by the way, he did a lot of risky shit while he's one of the only ones that has the key in the gate. He'd right. be like an insurer's worst nightmare. Yeah, including performing <laughs> in front of all the Rocky Horror Picture Show fans. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, yeah. It, it, that, it's that, like Lincoln. <laughs> Why do we have to bring up dead presidents on this fucking podcast <laughs> all the time? It's always too soon. It's never going to be appropriate, Chris. You jerk. I, Look. <laughs> it's a play. It's the, it's public exposure. It's the potential to be killed while near a stage. I get I it. Help myself. I get it. But but I do want to circle back here. The climb to ninety nine. Like, did it bother anybody? Probably not. But I thought it should have been called the grind to ninety nine because grinding is what you do when you level up. He's got a point. Missed opportunity there. All right. So when he graduated, from I, like I have that football. in my notes, so I had to say it. I just like. This is <laughs> off the rails, Ryan. Off the rails. <laughs> but he does like a little bit, you know, after the montage, you know, we've got this, this, uh, as Chris calls it. Yeah, it is sort of like a montage moment where, you know, he and Artemis are kind of circling back. They're emailing each other. She's actually responding. They start to meet in private chats. They start doing quests together and all that kind of thing. <laughs> He does that Goonies quest sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. But it does sound awesome. I want. I want to go run through the Goonies world. That would be That'd freaking awesome. Oh my but, god! If it okay, so if this existed, if there was one adventure you could go on in the Oasis, what would it be? Firefly. <gasps> yeah, that would be awesome. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? Shit, Fucking yes. Firefly. Yeah, yeah, Firefly would be good. I think maybe that and potentially Westworld. Groundhog's Day. <laughs> Seriously? No. That's the one you chose? Groundhog's Day? No, 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 no. <laughs> but, no, I would probably do... My, m- the two of mine are pretty pretty pedestrian. But I would choose... Well, I'll say three. The fight against the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Because when I was a kid, the idea of... Um, what's his name? Uh... Egon? No, the guy who gets dumped on in the street with all the marshmallow. Oh, oh the uh, the guy with no Walter dick. Peck. Walter Peck. Yeah, Walter Peck. Walter Peck. Like, like every time I saw it, I was like, God, that would be awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, like when I was a kid. Um, so I do I do the fight against uh, I, I do the fight against Stay Puff. Um, I would do the scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he's trying to get back to his bedroom before his parents came home. Oh yeah, that would be fun. Oh, <laughs> like that all would the be stuff he awesome. has to do to get back. That would be cool. And then um I would do, of course, you know, Captain Ron Solo gotta keep it real. Uh I would do Han Solo coming in 
and saving the day to clear the way for Luke Skywalker. Just, I would love to see, like, the way they did Rogue One, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Rogue One, it ties right up into, uh, into uh, you know, the first... A New Hope. Part four. But I would love to see, and I hope they do this with the Solo movie, I hope they have the moment he decides to turn around and go back. When he's sitting there talking to Chewie. I would love to see that conversation between Chewie and Han. Where he's like, <laughs> fuck, I gotta go back. And then he goes back and clears the way and saves the galaxy. I have a feeling I know how the story goes, which is, hey, Chewie, go check the chest of rewards they gave us. And there's like three shekels on the bottom of the chest. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I gotta keep Luke alive. Son yeah. of a bitch. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Goddamn rebels! <laughs> Cheap they really are dumb. <laughs> What about you, Angie? I would totally do Neverending Story because that was the one of my favorite '80s movies that does not turn up in this book, and it was a complete failure on his. God, that could totally be a video game. You know what, though? That'd be an Atari game, but it could totally be a see. video game. But but Neverending Neverending Story. I wish he would have brought it up. Because there's a through line with never ending, never ending story in Ready Player One. The way the kid escapes to the book, you know, and like, like it's almost like an alternate reality for him. Like, okay. like I don't know why, but like I got the same feeling reading Ready Player One as he probably got reading that book. Just like up in the attic, he's visualizing it to the point where it's like almost affecting him in real life. You know, I mean, like it's it's this really cool sort of through line between the two books. He's got and, his own yeah, hideout. Yeah, he's got his own hideout, which is badass. It's like, what is it, like, the attic of his school? <laughs> and the book is all mysterious looking and stuff. So how does God, that work? The, the planet gets destroyed by the nothing at the end of every day and the server resets the planet? <laughs> that would work. <laughs> I haven't thought the whole thing through, Chris. <laughs> Fanfic forthcoming. You take, you take your horse as far as you can, and after the tenth time of that damn thing drowning, you're like, fuck it, I know where this is going. You just, you just leave him in the swamp. Just, you know what, I'm just going to go this one alone. I'm, I'm just going to walk into the swamp. You just stay here, horsey. Just can't handle that anymore. <laughs> Every child is scarred by our tech. I was scarred by that. Yes. That was sad. You're like, that, that's not, they're not really going to let that shit happen. That's not, is it, it's going to die? <laughs> I, I saw that movie at like 12. I'm like, oh, that's fucked up. He just lost his cat. <laughs> he lost his dog. It just gave up. Like, this is like hopelessness of animals. My favorite, my favorite thing about Neverending Story is, um, I, I made a Facebook post about it recently. Like, the theme of Neverending Story is, you know, if your mom dies, your dad will be a dick about it. <laughs> Why are you so sad? <laughs> Go to school. <laughs> I have to wonder about mom and dad's relationship. I really, really do. Because dad's like, what is your problem? <laughs> no therapy. No, you know, not like, just go to school, kid. She's dead. <laughs> It was a different time back then. <laughs> I in the eighties, you just say while. "suck it up" and keep moving. I guess I, I don't, I don't know. It's <laughs> a rough thing to say to a sensitive little kid. Yeah, okay, fine. And you think about that. His mom's died. Now he's reading the part of the book that is the the horse is dying and gives up. If I was that kid, I'd be like, "Fuck this! Close the book. Go eat my lunch." I don't need this again. I don't need this shit again. 
You've really thought this through, haven't you? <laughs> I have at least thought that movie through. Possibly too much. <laughs> Just drink your chocolate milk and shut, shut the fuck up. up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, harsh. Jesus. It is harsh. I feel harsh. Uh, so then we get into Space Giants. Is this a show that any of you guys have actually seen? I haven't. I hadn't even heard of it before then. Okay, yeah, I, I've i never seen it or heard of it you, either. You mean Mogumitashi? Yes. I'm just kidding, I've never heard of the show. <laughs> it just says that's what it's called. <laughs> that's just what it's called in Japan. I just figured I'd... My, my face was like, all right, baby, come on. <laughs> Get to the punchline, for fuck's sake. Get to the good part. hey uh. I I did know all of the quotes that they used in their text messaging yeah that was actually pretty easy the uh what was it um answer the question claire yeah from breakfast club, breakfast club. Mm-hmm. and then uh quid pro quo dr Lecter, silence of the lambs of course <laughs> no time for love dr jones which is Indiana uh jones of the temple of doom and but the way he quoted it was more about um randall from clerks mm. Because in um, in Indiana Jones, it's "Hey, Doctor Jones, no time for love. We got company." But in Clerks, Randall says, "No time for love, Doctor Jones." Mm-hmm. That's that's a good oh. point. That's interesting. All right, I that's totally didn't hit. So that. so that's another throw. Um, uh, it's another Kevin Smith reference that just still feels so so much like it doesn't belong. Like when we really? go, like like in chapter six, when, when he goes through that whole list of all these people from, you know, from the nineteen eighties and all these directors and authors, and of course Kevin Smith, he's the one that I feel like he just doesn't belong. I, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm a I'm a huge Kevin Smith fan, and his oh, adoration I, of eighties stuff and his incorporation of it into his movies, it almost feels like. Nesting Kevin Smith stuff is like an Easter egg inside of an Easter egg or a nesting doll. Because any reference you make to Kevin Smith could very easily dive into an 80s reference, which is a lot of Kevin Smith stuff anyway. And maybe that's where it feels weird because it's not direct. It's yeah, kind of it's circuitous in, in its reference. I think it's neat that you picked that up, though. I totally missed that, and I'm a huge Clerks fan. That's a great movie. But the last quote, this one is a little more difficult because it's it's actually a little bit more prevalent in pop culture. Uh, the re- reve- revenge is a dish best served cold. Star Trek, Star like Trek, Ra- Ra- Wrath of Khan, and apparently also in the I can't remember if it's in the movie, but I think I read that it was in the book of The Godfather. But I haven't read the book, so I don't know for sure. But it's I think it's so overused. Yeah. It's like blues music, you know? Everybody covers it. Nobody knows where it comes from. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, but, but you know, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, like Kevin Smith. I mean, if you look at Mallrats, if you look at Clerks, if you look at even Chasing Amy, I mean, like, the way that he constructs a male character, Kevin Smith does, is not far off from how Ernest Klein constructed Wade where he's this just, like, innocent, sort of down-on-his-luck guy that, you know, just falls ass-backwards into bad fortune sometimes. But at the end of the, you know, by the end of the movie, he solves the problem and gets the girl. 
I mean, that's a trope that you can connect to a million other things, but I mean, just the way that he he kind of makes Wade in the banter that he has, it feels like an 18-year-old version of, you know, Jeremy London's character, Mallrats. I mean, it, it's just, it's, there's a connection there. I don't know. I've, I feel like there's a heavy influence there somewhere. But, I mean, if you're going to be influenced by somebody, Kevin Smith in the modern era is not a bad person to be influenced by, for sure. No, fair point. What next? And the cheese stands alone. All right. You know, I, I keep thinking <laughs> that this, this, this one chapter feels like multiple chapters, uh, particularly where we start to tackle the quatrain. And he starts getting into how mm-hmm. he is unraveling the quatrain slowly. One day at a time. I mean, like when he says, I, I bring it up at least once a day. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the book, I mean, his obsession was was basically unending with the original, you know, the riddle from the video. I mean, it never stopped. And I just like, like, this is, this is a really good point to bring up, you know, how Wade has kind of veered from the contest. I mean, it seems it's sort of, I, I guess it makes it more genuine. His, his infatuation with Artemis in this chapter, you know what I mean? that he's found the one thing that will take his mind off the hunt. Yeah, it's definitely a good way of showing that he has gotten very distracted. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, he goes from, like you said, constant to, well, at least once a day I look at it. I mean, he did watch all 52 episodes of The Space Giant, but you can watch TV while obsessing over your internet crush. In in fact, I recommend it. The thing it, it seems like it takes him an exceptionally long time to try to draw a connection between line one and line three. Yes. So he's mm-hmm. very clearly distracted. Because like I mean, like they're not that far apart from me, from each other. Why wouldn't you try to make that connection a hell of a lot sooner? Because it's really like the only connection that that they introduce in this chapter that even like makes somebody who doesn't even know anything about those, you know. The uh, Captain Crunch and and whistle blowing. Uh, that's it. Like it starts to like make sense. Like that seems like a very logical place for those two lines to go to, without knowing any other possibilities it could go to. So you know, go ahead. I was gonna say like it just seems to me like I think that this chapter really kind of tries to hit home that he's just so com- incredibly distracted uh, to the hunt because of this infatuation with somebody who he barely knows, barely knows her. And it's, I mean, maybe he could have solved the, the riddle a hell of a lot sooner if he would just focus. Yeah. I, I did want to bring this up. This is an offshoot of what you're talking about, but, when I first read the book, it was like a couple months, I guess, after I read this book called Ghost in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, well, I've heard of him. I yeah. haven't read the book. Yeah, it, it's 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 a super good book, but it's it, it's about how he got into hacking and stuff. There's a hilarious part of the book where um, they figured out how to broadcast to the frequency of a uh, drive-through at McDonald's, and so they just sat in a car. And they would like talk to the people in the drive-thru and they would just like say the most offensive shit to them. 
<laughs> just to like pull a prank. But uh, in the book, he also talks about the blue box, which of course was, you know, one of the things that came out of this, this whole Captain Crunch, John Draper thing. Um, the blue box was something that I think originally, and correct me if I'm wrong, was developed by Steve Jobs um, to broadcast at 2600 hertz and access the long distance calling ability through, you know, any, you know, phone provider. Um, and, you know, again, that connects back to sort of the the parallel between Halliday and Steve Jobs. But it was sort of the beginning of that, that, that phone freak thing. It was the beginning of, you know, that hacker culture and everything like that. Um, I can't get enough of that stuff. And if, if you haven't read Ghost in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick, I highly recommend it. It's such a cool book. It gives you a real look at... Um, the beginning of hacker culture and, you know, how phone freaks operated, no pun intended. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really good book uh, for that kind of thing. So if you, if you want to delve deep, if you want to get, you know, get your gunter on, definitely pick up that book. If you want to learn about phone freaks. I, I did in my research on this chapter, um, found out some information, very similar to what you're talking about, but the blue box and how that was actually, um, critical in the creation of Apple. Yeah. And like, I had no idea about that. that it was like one of the first things he and Wozniak developed together. Yeah. And oh, like help them, and help them get the funding uh, to help found Apple. I was like, that's, that's really cool. It's well, there yeah. were, there were a lot of books. There were a lot of boxes that could be used when I was, when I was that age and I was kind of getting into that particularly on the bulletin board systems in the early internet, uh, you had multiple colored boxes. And the gist was that it was plans to create a device. So the word box wasn't literally a box. It was just mm. that this is a device for doing something specific. Some boxes allowed you to make long-distance calls. Others produced a toner signal that made it seem like it was off the hook, which had its own means of, of circumventing the system. But there were a lot of online boxes that were basically blueprints for for getting into the system. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I mean, if, you know, I mean, if, if you find this, you know, Ready Player One interesting or, you know, that, that beginning story of Halliday, that, you know, delve into any, any sort of box, but Blue Box and, you know, I mean, John Draper and Kevin Mitnick and, you know, the, the things that they started. I mean, it's really interesting to see you know, the story of how, I mean, basically, I think out of that came the personal computer, which is just an odd thing to say, you know, I mean, out of pirating and, and fucking with the phone companies came, you know, the two biggest competitors in, in, um, you know, in modern computing culture, I guess that's the way to say it anyway. They're mentioning about um, Artemis and, and, and Parzival going on dates and, you know, now that he has these unlimited financial resources to go out and explore the Oasis. But they mentioned that, you know, they, they put on disguises. My, my feeling is here because IOI is who they are and they control, you know, most of the ports for normal people into the Oasis. How do they not know that Parsville is still operating within the Oasis at this point? Yeah, see, we kind of talked about that. Uh two chapters ago 
like, could they notice him leveling up or if people are seeing him doing quests, you know, posting up on message boards, I saw Parzival doing this quest. Yeah. How could they not know? But like they, 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 dis- they you know, I mean, they make an active effort to, to disguise themselves as if, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be, you know, I mean, even if he hit his avatar name, even if he put a different skin on, they wouldn't recognize that Parzival was in the Oasis, like signed in at that moment. Okay, I get that. I get it from the point that he has already signed over his his avatar's look and name to the companies that create hardware that they end up using for commercials and shit. So people might recognize him in the Oasis. It might not be a matter of hiding from IOI anymore. It might be a matter of much like people who are are movie stars that just want to go and explore without being harassed that sure. disguise yourself in order to move through the society of the IOI without an enormous amount of fandom crashing down on you. Yeah. I mean, I get that. But it, it... he's talking about both because he talks about how they, they she said that they should keep low profile because if they saw his avatar in public, they'd know that their attempt to kill him had failed. And then he's like, fuck it. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm hiding in the real world. But then they talk about the fact that they still disguise their avatars because they didn't want to be seen together. There's a whole, whole bunch of stuff going on here. But I don't know how he thinks that they didn't already know he was alive. Yeah, it's just it, it, it's a revisitation of what we've already talked about. But it seemed like her biggest concern was IOI at a certain point in the chapter. Yeah. And... I, I don't think throwing a new skin on your avatar is going to hide you from, you know, the biggest, like, <laughs> you know, the biggest provider of access to the Oasis. <laughs> I mean, he's probably got IOI access to the Oasis from where he's at at this point, right? Well, I thought he, I thought he said that one of the benefits of the place he was at is that they had the direct line. That's right. That's right, he did. So he's not going through IOI for his service in this but particular right. place. So, but we don't know about Artemis. Indeed. But what we do know from earlier is that they don't know where she is. So I don't know. I, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say, but when you start going around and then your date ends up having you being a star for the place that you go on a date to, which in this case was um, for Rocky Horror Picture Show. The planet transaction. Yeah. yeah, and they knew and they knew who he was. I mean, you might that's gonna be news. You might as well be telling IOI you're there. There's no really hiding yeah. from that because he says the only reason why they were allowed to go on stage and do their thing is because they had a reputation. Yeah, it's like it's like putting it's like putting a post up on Reddit under your username, and it gets to the front page. And you're like nobody knows I'm here. Just like that. <laughs> Once again, his distraction is making him sloppy. Yes, exactly. Yep. And you know, there's there's a point at this point. There's something that he says in the book. That of all the all the things that you you would say are quote unquote cringeworthy about this chapter, this was the one that made me like grit my teeth at Wade. Is he said, I think I think she's impressed by the fact that I'm fearless about this. Like it, like this bravado is 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 what impresses her. No man, that's why she thinks you're a dipshit. <laughs> like this is why she does. You know, I mean, like. Like, why would you think that she would be, of all the conversations you've had with Artemis up to this point, 
Why would you think that saying, you know what, I don't give a shit about IOI, I'm going out as Parzival, and we're going to go see a giant show tonight. Like, why would she find that attractive? Everything about her has said that it, yeah. <laughs> He's like, nope. She's the tactical thought here. She's she's really kind of keeping her head on, whereas he's just kind of like, it's 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 cocky arrogance. And I think at some point this is a, this is where pride and arrogance is going to lead to a fall. Yeah, he's trying to impress her by ignoring her very good advice. I, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and I could just see her going, "Oh, that's cute," but no. I know every every time I tell Jamie my wife, every time I tell her. I'm doing the opposite of what she wants to do. That's the thing that impresses her. <laughs> that is not the way it works. <laughs> she gets incredibly frustrated because I do stupid shit sometimes. And that's the situation here. I mean, he's doing the opposite of what she's, you know, I mean, she is the voice of reason in this conversation. She's like, you should probably play it a little bit close to the best right now. And he's like, no, I'm not going to. And I think she liked that. I, I think that she, it's such she a keeps, disconnect from reality that I don't even really know how to parse it. <laughs> she keeps such a an emotional distance that allows her to be the most rational person amongst all of them. Oh, sure, yeah. Or, or at least between the two. That he is more driven now emotionally, and as a result, very careless. And she has become the, the point of reason and, and, and reserve and caution. And I love that, you know, that, that it kind of... And maybe his rebelling against her being that way makes him think again that, that somehow that's impressive or I don't know. I, at that point, the logic eludes me. Let's see. So Rocky Horror Picture Show is, is you know, the site of their uh, of, of, of their big date or their first big date. Um, this was something that, uh, you know, when I was when I was in high school was sort of the the cult thing to do. I think nowadays it seems to be turning into the room. The room is like the Rocky horror picture show of the modern age. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't even know what the room is. Yeah. What are you talking about? Are you serious? This is not the place to have this discussion. <laughs> so we'll talk about it later, but you really don't know what the room is. For reals. No, I don't. Aaron. No clue. Like I know that there was like some iOS game called the room and there was a movie called The Room, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. Uh, the movie is exactly what I'm talking about. Huh. You, God, okay, so there was a movie called The Disaster Artist, which I'm sure you've both heard of. Yes, all of them. Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I live in a bubble. No, man. <laughs> Sorry. All right, so James Franco um, and, and his whole merry band of idiots put together, I, I say idiots lovingly because I actually like the movie a lot. I know where this is going. Okay. Disaster Artist is a movie about the making of this movie called The Room. And it's a cult classic because it is the worst movie or one of the worst movies ever made. So now people go to screenings of The Room and there are certain points where they throw spoons. There's certain points where they say like certain parts of dialogue, just like they did with Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's sort of the same thing because like, I remember when I was in high school, one of the, uh, I was dating a girl who was a couple years older than me. Hello. And, uh, you know, she she was a huge Rocky Horror Picture Show fan, and she took me to Gary, Indiana. 
to this theater that every Saturday night at midnight they would do Rocky Horror Picture Show and you would have to go dressed up and they would bring you to the front of the room and you would have to act out certain parts. And if it was your first time going, they would absolutely make you go to the front of the theater to act out certain parts. Uh, sort of like the, the reverse of what they're talking about here because in the Oasis, apparently you have to like audition to be that person. Where I went, if it was your first time, you had to get up there. And it was fucking humiliating. But it was a blast. It was the most fun I ever had. <laughs> did you never go to a midnight screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show? I, I did plenty of times. I actually I almost got kicked out of one. Okay. There's a story <laughs> here. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> so you know how you're supposed to, uh, when it's raining, you have the, your squirt guns and you, you, know, you, you squirt water in the air? So. Mm-hmm. So I was at a theater where they said, this is not allowed. You cannot do this. We were going to confiscate your water guns or whatever. So, of course, we smuggled one in. And uh, during that scene, I started shooting the water gun. And they caught me. (laughs) And they kicked you out? Uh, They almost did. I talked them out of it. They let me sit in the back. Why Why would you hold a midnight viewing of Rocky Horror Picture Show and not be ready for that kind of thing? Uh, I think it was because my guess is they either got sued or almost got sued because somebody probably slipped in the theater uh, from that. What about you, Angie? Did you ever do the midnight Rocky Horror Picture Show thing? I can't stand it, and I can't stand the room either. I'm, I'm a terrible person. You didn't like Rocky Horror Picture Show? No. Oh, God. I, I think that's I part of it. Like, like That's part of the reason why it was so popular, because it it is really bad. Yeah, I don't like bad movies. Like, I, I know there's this really appeal of it's so bad it's good, and that is just lost on me. <laughs> yeah, I, I when I I've gone more recently, which is not nearly as as cool as what you described, because now they do it because it's so popular. Back then, they did it because it's so bad. But when we'd go on Halloween and we'd see it in the larger theater here in Knoxville, and they would do the show. I really got the perspective that the movie was so bad that the audience agreed in a sort of weird amoeba-like way to make it more entertaining. And and thus, the, the feedback that they had, the throwing of rice, the making of comments, the accenting of the songs with the different verbiage that they would throw in, was really a means of, of making it more entertaining for themselves. And as a result, it ended up being awesome. Yeah. Uh, and you were taking something that was crap, but was inspirationally crappy, <laughs> and it inspired an awesome experience. And that that well, kind of turned it into that cult classic. I remember seeing Rocky Horror Picture Show because I saw it on I saw it on VHS for the first time, and I was like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get why people like this. Like, you know, I mean, it's it's a cool movie. I always like Tim Curry. You know, obviously he's been in a bunch of my favorite things, but. Like I, I didn't get it, and then when I went to see it live, I was like, "This is this is like a full experience." And without the experience, it's not the same. Like you don't connect with it. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a sub there's like a whole subculture behind it, which you know I mean, to a certain degree, this this book is about subcultures. So it you know I mean you know this reference finds its home here pretty comfortably. I think that that movie was like was like the MS the inspiration for MST3K. <laughs> you know, the the ability to Which take one, something Which Rocky Horror Picture Show? 
Yeah, because I mean that's that's what Mystery Science Theater was about. It was about taking a really bad movie and having a couple of a few few voices then make fun of the movie as the movie is playing and make it that much better. And I I can't say that it was literally an inspiration, but that's what it's like. Yeah. But, but when I when I saw it, like I had some friends recommend it uh, for you know reasons you've already mentioned, and I was like, all right, cool. So I had some friends over who had never seen it before. I'd never seen it before. We got to get this movie. My friends tell me it's fantastic, and it was the most deadpan watch. No one laughed. No <laughs> one said. And what was worse is that we were teenagers, and it it's it was awkward. It was it was the entire thing was just uncomfortable. And awkward. <laughs> and when it was over, it was kind of like, all right, well, uh, good night. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we watched tonight. <laughs> that's the thing that happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's um, not nearly as entertaining uh, by itself. I always, I always thought that, uh, and we got two more bullet points to get through here, so we'll, we'll move through this very quickly. But I always thought that... Um, uh, little Shop of Horrors was sort of like this is a Rocky Horror Picture Show if you did it a little bit better. Like I loved Little Shop of Horrors, but I'm a huge Rick Moranis fan. If you put Rick Moranis in anything, I'll, I'll watch it. And I always thought, and I still think this, that Rick Moranis could have a big comeback. And I think the person to do it is Quentin Quentin Tarantino. Imagine Rick Moranis in a Quentin Tarantino movie. It'd be fucking perfect. You gotta. The original movie for that did not have Rick Moranis in it. That was a redo. The first movie, okay. the first Little Shop of Horrors as a movie was done in the 70s, and it had Jack Nicholson. Really? Now, he had like a momentary thing where he comes into the plant store, buys some daisies because he likes eating fucking flowers, and then leaves. So he's just a weird dude that comes in and comes out. But if you go and you buy like the VHS or DVD version of the movie, on the cover, it, it will show him. As, as the main reason to get the movie. But then they respun it in like the 80s with Rick Moranis, which I feel is like the best of, of any example of that movie that you could have because it was freaking awesome and hilarious and had Steve Martin and all that stuff in it. But so he, he never played Seymour. No, he didn't. They just used it. To, they used Jack Nicholson to, to market the movie. Yes, he was an extra, and then years down the road, he was just used to market the movie. Got it. Well, I'm glad they used Rick Moranis because I love that guy. But speaking of love, at the end of this whole encounter, something happens. Artemis reaches in and, even though not in the physical plane, kisses Z. So the first, you know, quote-unquote physical contact that happens between the two of them is engaged by Artemis. So what do you think of that? It's really? just like one little line and it's just thrown in there and it's not and then it like the whole narrative just switches. I know. <laughs> I think at this point they've been hanging out. We don't have any reference to him being creepy at her, so maybe, you know, things have kind of they've gotten to know each other, they've been hanging out. I, I don't see it happening, but apparently within the narrative of this book, she's suddenly interested. It's going to make it the foreshadowing, but it's not going to go well. So it doesn't fit. Right. And, you know, the first time, I would say like the first few times I read the book, I read it for some reason in the back of my mind. I had it that she like reached in and kissed him on the cheek, which would be fine. That'd be like a good goodbye. Like, you know, see you later. 
But no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't expressly say she kisses him on the cheek. It says she kisses him. So it's it's an act of intimacy in some way. I mean, it's as intimate as you can be physically within the oasis, which we find out more about the next couple chapters. Well, he's certainly going to interpret it as a very intimate moment. Oh yeah, his read on it is is you know is 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 that that's that's the lock in moment. Well, and that's why I don't. That's the reason why I feel like this chapter, again, montages over this stuff. Because, Ray, just as you mentioned, it feels like all of a sudden she's interested and kisses him. But months go by. And it expresses here that he has invested time in doing stuff with her and, and, and you know, reaching level 99. Like, this is, a, this is a chunk of time that they really don't flesh out well. And that, which is the reason why at the end of the chapter this feels kind of sudden. We go from him initially hitting on her to them kissing many months down the road in, like, six pages which in my mind just is not enough time to establish a deep enough connection to make this feel informed, legitimate. Like I can't get really emotionally connected to this, this chapter because it just at the very, where you come from at the beginning and where you end at the end seems very sudden, even though there is an expression of time that's laid down. I mean, if it had been explained like she had gotten, you know, they, they did this play together and they were playing lovers in the play, she got swept up in the moment and it was a mistake, but they don't even, it's not even addressed that way. It's just not addressed. It's funny because and, the characters that they do play were lovers. Right. And they mentioned that. Yeah. Oh. So they could have easily explained it where she was like, look, you know, when we were at the play, I, you know, I just got swept up in the moment and it didn't mean anything, but they don't, we're not getting into the next chapter, but it just, it doesn't fit. And I think he was, Klein is very clumsily trying to, show that they do have a bit more of a connection by the end of all this, but it feels very rushed. Like you said, it, we're talking from February to June or July or possibly longer in here, and it still feels rushed. Right. It's, it's, a, it's, it's from one state of a mind to, to another, where she is, you know, she's dancing around, you know, the idea of it, um, and then to full on just like kissing him. I mean, the montage that Chris is talking about where, you know, they go on quests, they go on dates together and all this kind of thing. I mean, like you can see something blossoming, but like the thing that the disconnect for me is that not only does it happen, but she, she initiates. And to me, that is it. And we'll get into this in the next chapter cliffhanger, you know, it sort of it sort of makes the rest of it kind of hard to process because it seems like she's just as invested as he is at this point in a romantic relationship you would think because she initiates that that encounter but at the same time she's still she's still thinking about the hunt she's still thinking the way that she did at the very beginning of the chapter so we go through this whole chapter we end in this way and not to spoil the next chapter, but the next chapter, we find her back where we found her at the beginning of this chapter, which I think is why it feels rushed. You know what I mean? Because even though all that time elapses, even though you know there's this whole connection between them that kind of goes understudied in the book, when we find them at the next encounter, it's an entirely different situation. It's back to what it was at the very beginning of this chapter. Well, he wanted to write a natural progression, 
and then realized, oh, wait, I need, I need, I need this obstacle. So I've got to back it up. Like, it just feels like he was just writing. This is natural. This is might what happened. And then, oh shit. Well, then if that, you know, that takes away this whole plot line I want. So we'll just go back here. And right. it just, it feels clumsy. Maybe there's a chapter that he wrote that was missing. Yeah. <laughs> like the last chapter of uh, Clockwork Orange. It's, it's funny how we, we continue to come back and go, uh, well, maybe this was retconned. I, I, it, it seems like there's a lot of pieces that, that don't fit well, and then you think, well, maybe they just he just fit it into a hole that was naturally there. Uh, it, it feels like if, if you had to name the chapter, it would be How I Won Artemis's Love. And like the next chapter would be And How I Fucked That Up. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, well, and, and these are the two chapters how I went away from looking for the prize and then how I realized I need to keep my eye on the prize I mean however you want to elate that but he was kind of like how to win friends and influence people and then completely piss them off yeah and it's hard to say I, I, I worked towards something for like six or eight months and then lost it in one night and the next right. chapter takes us to that place so I wonder if he's kind of like I know how this is going to end but I've got to set up how we get to a place where it's going to end, and hence this chapter. Okay, so before we go, and we're about to go, I want to I want to bring this up because this is something that I thought about when I first started reading this chapter. Um, you know, when we're doing research, it obviously the first time around didn't think of it, but when the book was being outlined, you know what I mean? Like, you, you bring characters up as you flesh out the story. Like I never got the I never got the impression that Dido and Shoto were initially in the story. I think they got fleshed out as as the story progressed or as he was writing. But who were the characters that he had in mind, the central characters when he wrote the book? My guess would be Parzval, of course, H, Sorrento, and Artemis. So he had to have known the progression of all of those characters before he started writing the book, I would think. So it just seems like a weird misstep if if he had outlined those those four characters. I, I'm not going to double check it. I think the way he does his chapters are very self-contained. Every chapter has a very specific purpose. This chapter, like every other sure. chapter, had a very specific purpose. Uh, and and I don't, I don't know that this was necessarily retcon so much as I felt it was rushed in order to fulfill a purpose. Yeah, but I would say I don't think I could have, I could stand for another chapter of this. Yeah. What? Like, Agreed. <laughs> if there, if this was two chapters, it would have been exhausting. It would have been hell. Yeah. Yeah. And we get it. We get it in the next chapter to a certain degree, and. You know, I mean, like it's it's prevalent in the book, and I, I think especially eighteen and nineteen, it kind of it's if if it's not a you know one of the major you know plot points, it's still something that's prevalent or it's weighing over the storyline. You know what I mean? I think next chapter, which I can't wait to do, <laughs> God, I can't wait to do it. Oh yeah, um, it's gonna be fun. We we dive into it a little bit deeper, um, but yeah, for chapter seventeen, that's pretty much it. Angie, do you have anything else? It's just so uneven. Like I said, it's just I I really feel like he was writing 
what he wrote was such a natural progression of this relationship and like, okay, maybe she, you know, she wanted a friend, he wanted a relationship, but somehow it seemed like through most of this chapter, they met in the middle and maybe towards the end, she was kind of swinging his way. And I just feel like all they had to do was continue that. All he had to do was just continue that. But I think he really wanted some sort of relationship angst in this book and he was going to get it in there despite the fact that even his own writing doesn't lead there. And I just, I don't understand. So about the little shoehorn. I've decided there's going to be this in here and I'm going to make it work somehow. I don't know. And then Wade gets... <laughs> Wade gets chapter 18. Yeah. <laughs> he steps looking, in it. Looking forward to that. So, uh, chapter 18, we're going to record that next week. Not really sure when this one's going to come out. My guess would be that there's going to be a little more editing on this one. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. But, um, Angie, we'd love to have you back for chapter 18 if you want to do it. I mean, I know when we had talked before, that was a chapter that was a little bit close to your heart, right? You know, this one just confuses me. The next one makes me outright angry. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so, so keep that. <laughs> so, if you want to do it, we'd love to have you back. Sounds I mean, good. <laughs> until next time, Gunters. My name is Ryan. I'm Chris. I'm Aaron. And I'm Angie. New part. Thanks for joining us. So long. Chris, you got your full throttle? No, give me a second. I'll go get my th- full throttle. I'll be right back. All right. <laughs> He's got to have that damn thing. This is how I loosen up, man. Uh, Yanni, who's a friend of mine who works for Subpress, was like, damn you, we were going to invite him to be the Subpress guest at Confusion next year, and you beat us. He's getting, yeah, he's getting into the stratosphere now. Oh, I know. I'm glad we got him when we did. I don't think we could get him now. Well, he might come back for you, though. He's got a special place for you. Oh, no. I think we're about two steps short uh, of hey. a restraining order, so. Yeah. What the fuck did I just walk hey, into? I, I, I <laughs> well, that's the show. Thanks for joining us, guys. If we're not served uh, legal paperwork, we'll have chapter uh, 17 out to you in about two weeks. Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of restraining orders, welcome to get to the good part where we're talking about the relationship between Wade and Artemis. To be fair, this chapter is not as terrible as the upcoming ones. Uh, Can you you measure 300 yards in the Oasis? (laughs) 